Hi, I'm Camille Martin-Thompson. And I'm Henning Martin-Thompson. We're from Martin-Thompson Architecture. We are architects and educators, and you are watching A Student's Perspective. Hi there, and thanks for tuning in to A Student's Perspective, the weekly series that connects students with designers, manufacturers, educators, industry professionals, and design media celebrities to hear their stories on just how they've gotten to where they are now. Through our conversations, we connect the past, present, and future of design to show just how much we can learn from each other to grow towards our fullest potential without prescribed limitations. Think of a student's perspective as a weekly design lecture series from the student's point of view. A Student's Perspective is a division of the nonprofit University Hall of Innovation, whose goals are to connect students with the design industry through design challenges and mentorship and a collaboration with the Marywood University Interior Architecture Program in Scranton, Pennsylvania. All interviews can be found in their video format at www.astudentsperspective.tv. For more information or sponsorship inquiries, please contact University Hall of Innovation at gmail.com. Hi, I'm Katie, and today I'm here with Camille and Henning uh, Martin Thompson from Martin Thompson Architecture, and you're watching A Student's Perspective. So hello, thank you guys for uh, speaking with me today. Could you maybe start out um, telling us a little bit about yourselves and your background in education? Sure, we can do that. <laughs> I think I think what we want to start out with is that, that we're both educators as well as practitioners, which is also going to flavor probably a lot of the things that we will touch on. It's not uncommon, of course, in our business that you do both of these things. But for us personally and individually and on our individual paths, I think it's been an important thing and, and something that has shaped our outlook professionally and personally as well. So, so it is it is important and we continue to be invested in in both practitioners, practitioning and and in and in the field of, of higher education. So I think that's 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 important to start out with. Uh, maybe you want to share your your background first. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so I think for me what is interesting is that the dream to become an architect and the dream to become an educator happened simultaneously and persisted. So I decided around age 15 or so when I was in high school, 15, 16, that I wanted to become an architect, but I always knew that I wanted to teach and I'm not quite sure why. Um, and so it feels very lucky uh, that to me that I actually get to do both of those dreams and that they've persisted. So it's been a really long journey. There've been a lot of different sort of detours along the way. Um, I grew up in Shaker Heights, Ohio, um, and after finishing an undergrad degree in architecture, I moved to New York City to begin practicing. Um, that had also been part of the dream. And after five years of practicing in uh, a setting that did institutional work, primarily, I went to graduate school uh, to get a Master of Architecture at WashU in St. Louis. Um, I 
consistently wanted to do work that impacted the public good. And so after my master's degree, I went to work for another firm that was doing institutional work on cancer hospitals. But then I realized that I wanted to sort of hone in on a different level of understanding craft and making in a way that isn't sort of fostered in institutional um, and sometimes public work. So I ended up moving back to New York City to work for firms that did um, really specialty high-end residential and retail. Um, and after that ended up starting my own practice and we can talk about that a little bit more later on. And I mean, we, we're newer in the field as a couple. Uh, we have very different backgrounds, so to speak. So I, I'm from Denmark. Uh, I trained as an architect in Denmark. I educated myself as an architect in Denmark. Uh, and our collaboration is of a more recent nature. Mm -hmm. Our uh, private partnership is of a more recent nature. So, so we've, we've met as, as grown-ups, you can say, after both having had an a, uh, extensive career in different fields which is also maybe an interesting aspect and, and something that we, when we prepared for this talk, also spoke about that, that somehow is important to us in the field, that it's, it's a field you can be associated with for a long time. And there are so many opportunities involved that change. Uh, I'm a first gen college student. My parents were uh, just ordinary workers. My dad was a janitor and my mom was a cleaning lady. I, had no knowledge of architecture growing up. Uh, I, I went to university to study political science because I wanted to become a journalist. And that was like the beginning of my academic career. Ended up in a dorm living with uh, two uh, people, two students who were at either end of their architecture education. One was just beginning, the other was just uh, finishing his degree. And they were actually my introduction to the field of architecture, which before that had not been on my radar at all. Um, so that was that was interesting. And they they ended up introducing me to aspects of education that I didn't get fulfilled in my studies at the Political Science Institute. Uh, I was interested in art. I was interested in music and things like that. And somehow they were able to show me that all of that was part of architecture, which was like, whoa, I don't just have to be buried in books, but I can actually do this stuff and educate myself. And um, I did a, a weird and probably in where I studied singular reversal of, of path going from the university. And physically that was down the hill towards the harbor in that city and joined the architecture school and it wasn't until I was in architect school that I met my first real architect, so to speak, a, a person who was had graduated and was doing the profession. So that was that was a, a different way uh, into it. And then it developed in many different ways from then onwards, uh, a career that has given me lots of opportunities, uh, most of them in leadership, communication, uh, innovation, things like that. Uh, so also a different path in the profession from what Camille has, has, has achieved. So, uh, and eventually higher ed brought us together. I'm now involved in study abroad and Camille is at 
Pratt Institute in New York, who sent students to my study abroad institute in Copenhagen. And through that, we our paths crossed. And uh, well, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's such a nice like story. I always um I always like think about teaching, but um like I'm so excited to kind of get into the field and see what it's like first. Like, um, so what would you say? Uh, the experience was like right out of uh, school, like trying to find a job, like um, what was your path that way? What were you thinking you were, you were going for right out of college? Definitely right out of undergrad, I was much like you. I was anxious to get into the field, into the office. It was like, as an undergrad, I had a rare experience of being able to TA two courses. One of them was my own section, which is super unusual. And I acknowledge that now and then. And I was also lecturing um, at a world-class museum, which was also kind of weird. So I'd already felt like I'd gotten some teaching in and I really wanted to practice. So I moved to New York City as soon as I graduated, essentially, um, started looking for jobs, moved there with no money, no apartment, no real significant contacts. Um, <laughs> Ended up couch surfing for three months while interviewing and working temp jobs. And then finally got a job, got an apartment. And I'd say 22 years later, it kind of worked out. <laughs> it's great. Um, so I'm, I'm a tad older than my wife. I was, I graduated in the early 1990s and uh, at that time, uh, I graduated from one of two architecture schools in Denmark. There are basically only two. Today, there's four, but back then it was two uh, in a, in a medium-sized provincial city, but, but a nice city to, to study in. And uh, work was not abundantly available. A lot of my peers that graduated at the same time ended up going to either Germany or Norway, where there was more uh, of a booming economy at that time. Uh, I was not ready to do that. I, I don't know, well, I guess I wasn't too adventurous uh, at, at that point. Uh, so I actually ended up not getting a job in an office, but applying for research scholarships and eventually got a research scholarship in Copenhagen, the capital of Denmark, and moved from where I was or was to Denmark to start that. And that was my beginning uh, also of getting into teaching because part of the research scholarship was to give lectures to uh, aspiring uh, first year freshman uh, architecture students at the at the Royal Academy and so on. Uh, so I did that for a number of years, uh, went to Cambridge in the UK and pursued that path and uh, eventually needed a job with a steady income, uh, which the research was not necessarily giving me year after year. And uh, my first break was actually a teaching opportunity. Uh, at the Study Abroad Institute, where I'm still working now. Uh, so 25 years ago, I walked in through the door there and uh, started a course in architectural theory, which was my beginning. I've been associated with that particular institute for 25 years, but for 15 years as a part-time faculty, as, as many teachers are. Uh, so I did like a main job and then because I like teaching, I continued to do that. So, so that was my segue into to teaching, was actually through research and the opportunities for teaching that that provided me with. And I guess for me, I started teaching first at uh, Parsons 
in New York after my master's degree. So when I moved back to New York after getting a master's degree, I started teaching there along with uh, working for firms. And then I started teaching at Pratt Institute shortly thereafter, much like Henning joining the part-time faculty ranks to maintain a foothold in the profession um, and somehow got talked into increasing responsibility over the years um, as a department assistant chair, as an assistant dean of the School of Design. And then, and now I'm uh, the acting associate provost for academic affairs for the entire institute. Um, and with those positions, I still have the flexibility of teaching some semesters and as much as I, I think that I can. Um, but I have learned that, you know, doing administrative work, teaching and running a practice simultaneously and a transatlantic marriage has its challenges. So <laughs> we also try to stay sane and happy and healthy. Yes. Um, so obviously being an educator is so important for you guys. Um, would you say that um, like having new students every year like really impacts your work in um, like in your field as well? And like, how does, like how does a, a student's person uh, I'm saying the name of the show, but how does like a perspective of a student affect your work um, in like your everyday life? Yeah, I love that question. So particularly when I was teaching design studio, I would learn from the intrepidness and the fearlessness of my students and their approach to their work um, and try to take that spirit back into my studio and my own work. Occasionally a student's discoveries about a new material would prompt me to want to do an investigation in the studio now. Um, I mostly teach classes on teaching, so on research, learning, <coughs> teaching methodologies in higher ed. Um, and I learn from my students a lot. So the research that I've done is mostly around critique and power and those dynamics. And so that work and working with the students has helped me in our office with our own staff at various times. Um, I actually really think that there's a symbiotic relationship between teaching or education and architecture practice, which is why so many practitioners end up um, engaging in education even still. But what about you? No, absolutely. It's a super good question. And I think I think I agree to a large degree that that it does impact one's work. Uh, as I said at the beginning, my my uh, career has been in fields of a different kind, uh, um, leadership and innovation and development. In a different scale too. And, yeah, in a different scale, working for both private organizations and public uh, organizations and and so on. So meeting lots of different people and yeah, the, the, the fact that I could keep my foothold also in education and in teaching and in being a lot of the time in studio doing studio work with students next to that also impacted that, but maybe more in a roundabout way because I wasn't practicing what I was doing in studio, mm. but I was discussing topics in studio of meaning to the society, to the community, or aesthetic things and stuff, stuff like that. And that definitely impacted me and kept me sharp in my other dealings in life, in my other jobs, so to speak, the, the daytime jobs, you could say. Um, so I've always found it uh, great. And having been invested in it for so long, I think we both also realized that students 
generations develop. Uh, there are different things on students' minds and agenda, and that also impacts our view of things and not only keeps us sharp, but makes us aware that the next generation is going to be the one that makes the push. Mm. So we got to invite them in. We got to make them part of the dialogue as early as possible. And I think I think that's one thing that educators share this this both willingness and joy of inviting younger people into the profession and dealing with it in a in a productive way. Well, it's a civic duty really yeah. to be engaging with the next generation of designers in that way and helping their development. I think it's really important in a very heartfelt way for both of us. And also, I mean, thinking about what I learned from my students, the, the creative endeavor in school is often a very internal dialogue. And then once one starts practicing, it really becomes so much about, of course, the agenda of the, the client proper and then the larger constituents. But what working with students reminds me is to maintain an internal dialogue with myself about my own drivers toward creativity and actually what it is I actually like and want, which often in practice sometimes gets subsumed by the other agendas. And so I find it really helpful. Yeah, definitely. Um, so talking about your personal want and drive, what made you uh, want to open up your own studio after working with all these different firms? Um, I'll be honest, I did not want to open up my own studio. Um, I, I didn't. I um, My dad had always been an entrepreneur and had businesses and I saw the ups and downs and the roller coaster and um, times can be great and sometimes times can be really financially destabilizing and so it's not what I wanted for myself. Um, but in the last firm I worked for, I was actually sexually harassed out of that firm um, by not returning the affections of uh, my boss who then fired me. And I said, I don't want that to ever happen to me again. I've been approached by a personal client that said, hey, can you design this addition to our house? And I was actually like, oh, actually I can do that. Um, and then more projects rolled in and I was able to sort of, you know, that experience at that job really crushed um, my inner sense of, stability and confidence in a way. And so it was in starting my own practice that I was able to regain a lot of that. And so I, I honestly fell into it. A, a lot of people decide that that's the path that they want and they go into it immediately. And I even had another boss who said, okay, if you want to start a practice, you need to do it before you're 35. And I don't know why he said that. Um, and I was actually about I don't know, maybe 34 when it started. So I was like, oh, well, this is the time because that yeah. boss said this is the time. So that's kind of how it happened. And then I guess with Henning, so with us not working together in higher ed, but always getting to dialogue with each other about higher education and about architecture and Henning's skill sets are so complementary to mine because they're so different. So again, he really is so great with visioning. He has done work at the larger scale, like even urban planning scale for different 
practices. He's so good at operations and organization in a way that he is, he creates a big container for us to be able to operate in practice. So we realized fairly recently, like, oh, we should just be doing this together and it's working out. Yes, yeah, I guess my, my way into it, I, I'm, I'm not from a, a background of entrepreneurship or, or anything. Uh, for a brief period in maybe 10 years ago, I had, I had my own office, which was primarily client advising, uh, not so much uh, practice of architecture or, or urbanistic uh, things that I was also involved in. Uh, and, uh, and now we're getting into this and, uh, well, honestly, I hadn't, I hadn't thought that at 58, I would become an entrepreneur and be part of a, of a, a company that's in one way, well-established because Camille's company has been around for, for more than a decade, but our collaboration of course is of a, of a more recent nature. So it's, it kind of, yeah, it kind of shows another thing in this field that there's, um, there's no expiration date on when you can take a new step or venture onto something new. That's that's the that's really one of the great things about our field design in a broader sense. Architecture is that 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 you can do that. And I, I just mm -hmm. feel very blessed to be <laughs> in practice with a with an architect who has a a strong track record and can actually get the stuff done whereas I can mostly talk about it, so. <laughs> um, okay, so if I did my research correctly, um, you specialize in luxury and sustainability, correct? Yeah, I mean, go ahead. No, I was just gonna ask, uh, like what draws you to that side of architecture and what interests you about that, I guess? <laughs> It's gonna sound a bit contradictory, but it's an honest belief that everyone deserves luxury and that the most luxurious environment is one where someone feels really relaxed. And the most relaxing environment is one that is sustainable in a way that's sort of not only doing good for the planet, not just not harming the planet, but actually sort of creating spaces that have longevity. Um, and so I think that we just try to have a mindful approach to all of it. And it doesn't mean that we will only engage in luxury spaces and luxury buildings, but sort of imbuing that sense of luxury into every project for everyone. No, we would certainly want to branch out. We are doing stuff and taking interest in, in projects that are of a different nature. But I think also one of the things about running an office is that you build on projects that you get and they shape a little bit of the trajectory of the coming projects that you get yeah and and Camille has had a strong track record in 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 this field in in that particular area so so we're building off of that but but we are invested in in other things and again my background in practice as Camille said was very much uh, an urban uh, area I work with with urban designers of, of different kinds in in Copenhagen. So so my my the scale where I feel most at home is is larger, 
We don't know if we're going to get into that. Uh, mostly, we just want to try this out, see how it goes, and enjoy the fact that we do like to work together yeah. and challenge each other in that. And uh, so we'll see. We'll see where where the journey takes us. Right now, we're kind of more interested in who the client is and in, in mm. less than the typology. So we're working on some cool, weird stuff right now um, that isn't necessarily what's been typically in our wheelhouse, um, like a tiny studio project, for example, which isn't sort of a niche, luxury niche project, but it is sort of taking those principles of understanding uh, real comfort, usability, longevity, sustainability, and putting them into a smaller container. Yeah, I really love that you described like that everyone deserves luxury and like really emphasizing that everyone is equal. I think that's so important. Um, I was actually, I started an internship in December and we were talking and um, they were, we were, I wasn't out on the time, but they were doing a project for someone and uh, the client was like, oh, well, the bigger rooms will like pick um, very specific materials for like the expensive stuff. And then the smaller rooms like will kind of just put whatever in it. And like uh, the girls at my firm were, um, they really like emphasize that that's just not the way to go. Like if mm -hmm. you're really gonna feel so, you're not gonna wanna come back to this place feeling less than the person down the hall. So I think that's so important and I'm glad that you guys feel that way, so. Oh, absolutely. I think it may also stem from some of the things that we've done outside of practice, our interest in aesthetics, our interest in equity and mm -hmm. in, in, in different fields. We're both invested in, in diversity, equity and inclusion work at our different at our, our institutions and in that part, uh, personally coming from a politically maybe different background in Scandinavia with a welfare sort of view of, of the world, which has also impacted uh, architecture and design and the profession of it, that, that, that people are not afraid of having design in their homes, mm -hmm. even though they're not like necessarily super wealthy. And that some of it, at least for portions of the of the decades was more affordable and might be less affordable today but but it's not like an off topic it's it's part of a lot of quote unquote normal people's lives they have a lamp from that design or the, the, the chairs are designed by someone you know and and that's part of the everyday makeup and that's the reason also why men we only uh, have students that are from US schools study abroad in Copenhagen with us. And that is definitely one of the attractions for many of the architecture and design students to come and see how a society impacts the view of architecture and how architecture impacts how society is developed. So I think, I think it's also a background in many ways that, that shapes that out view that we feel uh, no matter where you come from or what you're doing, you deserve greatness you deserve pleasure you deserve something beautiful and it will it will make your life better which is ultimately what we want to do as designers well I think that's so well stated and it reminds me of going back to my own perspective as a student a student's perspective I got 
study abroad three times between undergrad and graduate school. And one of the things that I took away from those experiences most when I was in Finland in particular, so not Scandinavian proper, but Nordic for sure, was this understanding that great design lived everywhere in that culture and it was for everyone. Um, and also doing work at the time uh, with Architecture for Humanity, a lot of the ethos there was about bringing great design to everyone, not just low cost design to everyone. It's a really quite a different perspective on um, housing people and offering design. And so I think that that really got hardwired into me while I was still a student. And so it's something that carries out um, both in design practice, but also in, in teaching. Yeah, I was definitely, I, that was actually my next question to ask about your study abroad experience. Um, did, uh, Henning, did you also have a study abroad experience? I know you're teaching. Uh, I don't know how that dynamic goes or I don't know, but. Yeah, not, not as an undergraduate student. I have to say um, I, I, I uh, actually had to take a year off from my studies to uh, make money because the, the background I came from was, was not necessarily uh, spectacularly wealthy or anything. And uh, uh, so, so that, was my, that was my abroad was away rather uh, during that time. Uh, but it was, a, it, was a, it was a good time to take a break for me personally. Uh, in my studies, I came back uh, stronger. I did study abroad later when I did research. As I said, I was in Cambridge, and that was a that was definitely a, a, a year that impacted my life forever. Uh, being in a in an environment of incredible focus on a little area of our field, but the, being able to invest myself so fully in it for 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 a year was was amazing. Uh, but I usually say now when I welcome our US-based students to Copenhagen, and we have 150 of them in the room. Uh, and a lot of the people that I work with are past students who've come back. My next in command is a former student. And I'm always the only one in the room who's never studied at the institution that I'm working at and who also hasn't studied abroad. So um, kind of sort of being honest about it, that there's stuff I can speak to, but that the students in the room actually took a a bigger step than I ever was able to do. And I, I, I usually commend them for it uh, and remind them that only one out of 10 US undergraduate students chooses to study abroad. So when they do, much like my wife did, you're setting yourself uh, apart from a, a big group of your peers and, and adding something to, uh, to your portfolio later on in life. We know, we know it works out later. Um, yeah, and we've been around for so long. So now we see stories of current students interviewing for jobs with past students at my institution. Mm -hmm. And so the, the trajectory is now decade long, which is also super interesting. Yeah, Marywood um, is actually like trying to make it so everyone will be able to go in our class. They make it um, the cost. They try to uh, mirror it to what it would be if you were to live on campus here. So they're kind of working with that to um, try to get everyone to go. Sadly, my class was the um, COVID-19 class and we got shut down right before we went. So uh, 
hoping to make it abroad at some point in my life and study a little bit over there. I think it would be, like you said, an amazing experience and like you'll learn a ton from it. So I'm excited for that half of my life to come. So not looking at, at it as a loss, but something to gain later. But um, jumping back to talking about your projects, I know you said you were talking, you were working on some, some weird and fun things, but uh, what is your favorite project that you've worked on? Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's, I know it's a hard question. <laughs> I, I can't point to one singular project, but my favorite types of projects are ones where I have a really close relationship with a client and they really trust us. And it doesn't actually matter what type of project or where it is, those inevitably are the most fun and satisfying and gratifying projects to work on um, because the, the client there's got to be a mutual respect. So respect of the designer for the client and their wishes, but also the respect of the client for the architect's expertise. And the projects where the client has really said, no, I trust you. I believe like we actually just finished up a project in Tribeca um, over the last few months, um, uh, outdoor terrace project. And what's been so much fun beyond the fact that that client's just really kind, which doesn't come along every day, is that they absolutely trust the expertise of the designers, the engineers in the room. And, and that's been really fun. Yeah, I would say I, have, I had a, a spell of different office opportunities, you would say a little later in my life when I was in my, my 40s. Uh, and I think my favorite projects, I was working for Jan Gale or Gale Architect, which is a world-renowned uh, urban design company that comes out of Denmark. Uh, Jan established the company about, uh, about uh, 20 years ago, I think, but he's worked in this field as a, as a researcher and educator for, for 50 years or something like that. And I got to work for him and his company. Uh, and because I was a a little more experienced what happens in a company like that, then you get a fine title, you're called senior consultant. Uh, and that means that you go out and meet clients also very early on. And we had some really amazing opportunities. I was working in Poland, I was working in Romania, I was working in the UK and being involved in urban development projects at the very early stages where either the public or a private developer is considering investing money. So we're talking like five, six, seven years before any stone is getting turned. And I thought, I, I really look back at some of those projects as incredibly inspiring mm -hmm. uh, for the value that they could bring to the community, but also idealistically for myself and, and sort of more egotistically, I like the part where it's all a mess, where you sort of, you don't know what's going to happen. I, I I thrive in that environment. And when you're given like a couple of hectares of derelict industrial land, and in this case, it was uh, actually IKEA's money uh, foundation that wanted to buy it and develop it. And they say, so what are we gonna do here? That was like totally inspiring. And, and you start to sort of, everything starts to come together. You 
think about streets and buildings and interiors, all of the stuff at the same time. I thought those, those, those kinds of projects were super inspiring and a very different kind of project from, from what Camille has been invested in, which is also why we think we're gonna be good at what we're doing now because we bring this, this scope of, of, of the field to the, to the table. Yeah, you touched on it for um, a moment, your inspiration for design. So I wanted to ask that question of like, where does your inspiration come from? I know you said a little bit of like the mess that kind of comes. And um, I definitely agree that it's definitely a fun time during um, the process and kind of just taking it all in and seeing what can happen. So um, yeah, where does your inspiration come from in design? That's difficult, I think. I think also here we we're we're both similar and and yet different. I, I'm definitely a very cerebral. I like books. I like I I studied philosophy as part of of my architecture education. So a lot of it was very intangible stuff, mm. and 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 that's always inspired me a lot. I know we're both going to say art in general for me as well, music. But it's stuff that doesn't like. It's not a one-to-one -one translation. Yeah. It's it's stuff that I enjoy being exposed to and immerse myself in. And I know it impacts what I do. I know it impacts. I can't just say this is what it did. But I know if I wouldn't do it, if I didn't have it, my work would be poorer, my inspiration would be weaker, and my impact would be potentially missing. Uh, we were both really interested in phenomenology at different points in our educations as well. I mean, I, I came into architecture very much a formalist, not unlike a lot of people, you know, in the mid to late 90s, early 2000s, and, and that approach, and then sort of eschewed that for understanding that was it's much bigger than just form. I mean, I, I came into architecture for form because I was, you know, really involved in sculpture and such in high school. So it it was a logical next step for me. But now inspiration, as Henning says, comes from everywhere. And it really comes actually quite a bit from dialogue. So there's the visual inspiration, but then there's also sort of talking about the work, ideating about it, writing about it even, and then coming to a different understanding of, of what form actually can be. Yeah, and I would also add, again, the student's perspective, the, the angle we're talking about here. And maybe uh, I, I, have, I have two kids from a previous marriage, uh, both of them now adults, have different trajectories. They both said their mother is also an architect. They both said they're never going to be part of the design world. And of course, they failed miserably at that. So one <laughs> is now a cabinet maker and the other is a fashion designer. So they didn't really get away uh, from the field. but. But my, both my kids, both my, my son as a cabinet maker and my daughter's fashion designer gave me access to a field I didn't know much about. Uh, I didn't know much about craft. I didn't know much about fashion, but both of them are part of an aesthetic environment in which we live. Uh, so I also have discovered that I'm taking a lot of interest and a lot of inspiration from what they're doing. Mm. Uh, their immersion in making uh, has helped me understand stuff as as a someone who's later in in his career uh, than they are, and that's not unlike what happens in 
the educational environment with students that you come across students who are invested and who are burning for this field and who want to try out stuff and your role is to support that experiment that they're engaged in but they also maybe sometimes without knowing it give a lot to you as the the professor as the faculty as the teacher because because you get you get warmed by the fire that they're showing and they take it in in many different uh, to many different uh, places as well I've had students that that have opened up fields of aesthetic and uh, interrogation that I didn't know about, but but that oh wow yeah of course that can be designed that can be something to use or to mobilize. I think in truth we're also both really inspired by material, and we're both really inspired by light. I mean, Henny takes photos of the light in the morning and the evening most days. Um, my grad thesis started about being a study of light um, inspired by Maholi Naj and ended up being a study of porosity and light filter. We have a small material library and I face looking at the material library so I can always look up from my computer and see what's on the wall and on the top of the drawers all the time every day. Um, and I so I think it's sort of the combination of all those things as mm. well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so I have one last question for you, and um, that would be uh, if you could give advice to your student self, uh, what would that be? You want me to go first, or do you want to go first? No, I can go. I can go first. I, I we again we. We spoke a little about it this morning to prep uh, for this. And, and I would say circumstances have shaped a lot of what I've been doing and given the opportunity to do. Uh, and individual people giving me a break, which I guess only happens if you're a, open to it, <laughs> and, and you expose yourself to situations in, in which that happens. So I was never born to become an architect. Uh, when I eventually started studies as an architect, uh, it was a relief for my parents because they didn't know what political science was, that that was not part of their everyday lingo. They were, you know, not necessarily invest, invested in that. And how could you spend so much time doing that? Whereas the the physical aspect of our surroundings, they could definitely uh, engage with. Uh, as I said, my dad was a janitor, so we had to go and fix the school all the time. So they knew a thing or two about stuff. He built stuff. your house. And he built the house that I grew <laughs> up in, which I never thought about having any impact on me. But of course, it's a wonderful thing to look back on now. Um, I have his drawing of it, which is just the line drawing of a house, and then he built it that you could do back in the day. Uh, but I think being open to circumstances, being being, yeah, just just being open to life, being open to what design can do for you, and keeping that positive attitude. I didn't always have that in school. I have my my notes from third year, uh, in which my professor says, I, "I'm not sure you should be doing this. This I'm I'm not. Uh, this might not be what you want to do for the rest of your life. You're not really that talented." And I had to agree that that I hadn't I hadn't really shown big promise in anything. I took a year off, went about 
cleaned at night and slept uh, during the day and saved up some money and came back. And he was part of my ensemble when I graduated and he gave me <laughs> a beautiful book he had written with a nice little inscription in it. And you certainly changed, man. <laughs> so, so it was, I mean, I stayed open to what design could give me. I could have given up at that point in time. I'm really happy I didn't. Yeah, I'm happy you didn't either. <laughs> My story is different, but not totally dissimilar to Henning's. I think that for architecture students, we're often, and even as practitioners, told no. And a lot of barriers are thrown up. Um, and the barriers happen for everyone. I think being a woman in architecture and being one of only about 500 Black women ever licensed as an architect in the U.S., there have been a, a lot of barriers and a lot of no's. There were times in school where I was told that I didn't belong in the profession. I too took a year and a half off in order to work and come back um, and graduated near the top of my class. And so we have sort of a sim similar story in that. Um, there are firms that will tell you no, there are clients that will assume that you're the secretary, there's something wrong with being a secretary, but if you're the architect in the room, you're the architect in the room, right? Yeah. Um, and it, it took me a long time to not want to satisfy everyone else's opinion of who they thought I was, but to just speak from my own voice and my own truth. And so I would say, remain persistent, stay open, like Henny saying, trust your own voice and exercise it when it you can, when it's appropriate. But the other thing I would also say, which sounds a little more cliche is try to find a mentor outside of your workplace. Um, when I was a senior in undergrad, uh, two architects with a world-renowned firm came to my school. And after their lecture, I said, can I look you up when I moved to New York? And I actually did it. Um, and they, especially the woman, have, have been an instrumental uh, mentor and impact on my life. Um, and it's sometimes way more valuable to have someone as a mentor than as a boss because they can help reflect on your path and goals and also sort of remind you, oh, but I've known you for a while and I know that the core of what you really want to be exploring is X, Y, or Z. So don't get distracted by that shiny object over there. You know? And so I, I think everyone should try to seek out that type of mentorship. And so I have it still in my professional life, but also in my life as an educator, I have a mentor who's outside of my institution. Very nice. Okay. Um, is there anything that I missed that you would like to talk about? We, I mean, this last part is something that we, we have talked a little about earlier, the, the aspect of, of equity in our field, the importance of it being for all kinds of people, all kinds of genders, and that there still is a lot of, uh, there's a lot of fights remaining mm -hmm. in our profession to make that fully happen. Uh, and again, when we talk under the headline of a student's perspective, um, that is definitely one of the things that we try to bring into our teaching is to provide role models 
for a variety of student backgrounds, whether they're first gen, whether they're students of color, whether they're women, or whether they are experimenting with their life, their genders, their individuality in a way that was not on the table when I studied, I think is super important to support and, and to make our profession available for any kind of individual that wants to invest their time and their energy and their, uh, their sort of worth into it. And I think that's, that, I think that's, that's a super important thing. Uh, I speak, of course, from a different background. I'm a middle-aged white dude. I, I haven't had many obstacles in life of the type that I know my wife has had and that I know some of my students have who have chosen uh, to follow who they are more so than adapt to what others think they should be. Uh, but I've been given opportunities to help shape it in my profession, my workplace, and, and try to use whatever little influence I have there when I hire people and so on to do it. But I think we're both agreeing that this this the equity aspect of our profession continues to be challenging and a super important battle that we just have to take uh, every day. Uh, yeah. And I hope we're speaking to a, a woman here. I, I, you will have to take that on as well. In, in your work, you will have to not be discouraged by the fact that you will enter a room and they will think you're a secretary as, as Camille said, uh, you will just have to straighten your back and say, I'm the architect. And that's why I'm here. Yeah. And then with a smile too, I'm mm. the architect, it's good to me. Yeah. I think it's also not just our altruistic selves who want and demand inclusivity. It's about strengthening and helping architecture survive as a way of practice. We are actually at risk at the moment. And the more that we can broaden, help people realize architecture is for them. They are part of this. Um, they are part of the dialogue that our clientele isn't just the most upper echelon, but by bringing people into architecture, we assure that there's still a place for that level of expertise in the room, in our projects, in our built environment. When we risk that, we see sort of the fracture of um, the aesthetic field of view that we're seeing around. And I, I don't think that's what any of us want. So by being more inclusive, we're actually preserving our own livelihoods. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I really enjoyed this conversation and um, I'm excited to keep up with you guys afterwards and see what you guys are up to. I'm excited for the projects that you've been talking about. Um, but yeah, I just, I just really enjoyed the conversation and I feel like I could take a lot from it. So thank you. Thank you. Oh, we enjoyed it too. Thank you so yeah, much. It was a pleasure. That's How many fun. more years do you have? Are you a senior now? Um, yeah, I'm in my last semester. So that's scary in itself. Um, I don't, so we'll see what happens there, but I don't know. Just almost done. It went by so long. Thank you, Camille and Henning. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Uh, if you liked this conversation, like, share, and comment any questions you guys may have. 
um, and stay tuned for next week's episode of Students Perspective. Thank you. We hope you liked this discussion with the design industry from a student's perspective. Please like, share, and comment, and stay tuned for more inspiring conversations to come.